This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere Thursday at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel anytime and keep the free book or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Power Over People, Classical and Modern Political Theory by Dennis Dalton from the Great Courses series. This is another little thing that I've used to get ready for teaching my philosophy class this year, and I can't say enough how valuable it's been. Professor Dalton's overview of political theory is both wide-ranging and very accessible, so if you're at all interested in the subject, go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 369, The Wandering Brush. Who are we as people, really? How can we sum up the complexities of our human lives in ways others can understand? It's an abstract question, and a hard one, and one that people have answered in many different ways throughout the years. Some have posited that man, in the end, is nothing more than a miserable little pile of secrets. Others have taken a more positive view, describing human beings as the ultimate moral end with incalculable value because of their unlimited potential. The Italian writer and journalist Italo Calvino, however, had a slightly different answer. Quote, Who are we if not a combinatorial of experiences, information, books we have read, things imagined? Each life is an encyclopedia, a library, an inventory of objects, a series of styles, and everything can be constantly reshuffled and reordered in every conceivable way, unquote. I came across this quote in a nice little article on today's subject, which I'll link in the show notes. I was trying, you see, to figure out a way to even define the subject I'd set for myself for today's episode, because today's episode is on something called Zuihitsu literature, that is, notoriously difficult to pin down. Zuihitsu is, in the last analysis, exactly what Calvino was talking about, a catalog of human experiences designed to reflect all those little moments and tidbits of a human story. It is an attempt to catalog the anecdotes of a human life. But it's not quite the same thing, you see, as a diary or something like that. Zuihitsu is produced self-consciously in order to be read, It's not designed to be a reflective act for the person doing the writing, but as a piece of literature to be consumed by others that appears to be an intimate look into the author's headspace. The sort of platonic ideal of the genre is the Makura no Soshi, or Pillow Book of Sei Shonagon, which we've already talked about a few times before. For a quick refresher, 
Sei Shonagon's famous text is a collection of anecdotes from her time at Japan's imperial court a thousand years ago, with everything from poetry to longer-form written pieces to lists of things that annoy her, for example, a man who has nothing in particular to recommend him, who discusses all sorts of subjects at random, as though he knew everything, gotta say I feel that one, or lists of things she finds elegant, wisteria blossoms, or plums covered in snow. The conceit of the text is supposed to be that it's a book of private recollections that just so happened to be found by a member of the court and spread around against Seishonagon's own will, and that the text then just so happened to become one of the most famous works of literature ever written in Japanese. I've seen some people take that at face value, but it's almost certainly untrue. The text was always intended to be read by others. Indeed, one of the most obvious ways you can tell the difference is by comparing the Makara no Soshi to actual diaries from the period. Those diaries usually involve A, a lot more boring details, and B, a lot more introspection about the self and the nature of one's own life, the sort of things people, frankly, tend to find interesting when it comes to themselves, and a bit tedious when it comes to others. Seishonagon's own work, by comparison, isn't really about her that much, it's much more focused on the world around her. Her role is not really to bear her soul to the reader, but to serve as a sort of witty color commentator to the world of 11th century Japan. And I think looking at the Makara no Soshi, which again is often considered the first and best exemplar of this genre, helps clarify a bit what this notoriously hard-to-pin-down genre even is. It's about the author exploring the minutiae of their own life, but doing so in a way that is clearly intended for others to engage with, and intended to illuminate something broader about the world the author is living in, rather than being focused solely on the author's own psychology. So with that definition in mind, let's look at two other examples of where the genre went after Seishonagon. The first one to consider is the Hojouki, which of course has nothing to do with the Hojo family, either Hojo family, instead Ho in this case means square, and Jo is a measure of distance equivalent to a bit under 10 feet or a bit over 3 meters. The Hojoki is thus often translated under the title Record of a 10-foot square hut, or alternatively Record of a hut or something like that. Said hut belonged to one Kamo no Chome, born in either 1153 or 1155 depending on who you believe. That surname, Kamo, is an important one. It's associated with the families responsible for managing the two Kamo shrines on the banks of the Kamo River in Kyoto. The shrines were built because of some geomantic associations with the direction the Kamo River runs into Kyoto from, the northeast, and the purpose of the shrines is to protect the city from malevolent spiritual forces which emanate from that direction. Now, specifically, Kamo no Chome was from the family associated with the Shimogamo, or Lower Kamo, shrine. That birthright also made him a part of Kyoto's aristocracy. The Kamo shrines held a fair amount of land in the capital and its environs, land endowments being the main way of funding religious institutions at this time, and Kamo no Chome's father held the not-insubstantial rank 
of lower junior fourth grade, which is about 60% or so of the way up the depth chart, so not too shabby, you have to admit. Kamono Chome was being groomed to take over the family business, so to speak, in terms of managing Kamo Shrine, to such an extent that he actually got his first court rank at the tender age of seven. However, in his early teens, his father took ill and was forced to retire from court. Kamo the Elder would die sometime in the 1170s. Kamono Chome, for reasons that are unclear, was passed over in the succession to his father's old job. Instead, that gig went to his cousin. Perhaps Chome was considered too young for such a prestigious role. Whatever the reason, Kamono Chome lost the job he'd been groomed for his entire life. He ended up moving in with his grandfather, but that too soured for reasons that are, again, unclear. Kamono Chome would end up moving out on his own. This was not the end of his cultural career, mind you. He would go on to find fame as a poet throughout the next several decades, winning acclaim from his contemporaries to such an extent that the Emperor Gotoba actually appointed him to a special commission of imperial poets charged with creating a new poetic anthology, what eventually became the Shin Kokin Wakashu. However, in 1204, for reasons that are, once again, not entirely clear, Kamono Chome decided to give it all up. He quit his job working for the emperor and decided to become a recluse, moving around a bit before eventually settling in the hills to the southeast of Kyoto itself. The ten-foot square hut of the Hojoki is the hut in which Kamo spent the remainder of his days until his own death in 1216. If you go to Shimogamo Shrine today, there's actually a replica of said hut based on Kamonochome's description of it. The design is supposedly based off descriptions from the Vimalakirti Sutra, which depicts the life of Vimalakirti, one of the first Buddhist recluses and generally considered the progenitor of what became Zen Buddhism. Hojoki is not the only thing Kamono Chome wrote. Given his governmental role, he produced a great deal of poetry, of course, as well as a theoretical guide to poetry writing known as the Mumyosho, or the Notes on the Nameless, something like that, as well as a collection of Buddhist tales known as the Hoshinshu, something like Collection for the Development of the Spirit. But neither of these texts are as well regarded as Hojoki, which also happens to have one of the most haunting and brilliant opening lines I've ever read. In Japanese, Yukukawa no nagare wa taezu ni shite, shikamo moto no mizu ni arazu. Yodomi ni ukabu takata wa katsukie katsumusubite hisashiku toromari taru tameshi nashi. Yo no naka ni aru hito to sumika to mata kaku no gotoshi. In English, I'll turn to the fabulous Donald Keene. The flow of the river is ceaseless and its water is never the same. The bubbles that float in the pools, now vanishing, now forming, are not of long duration. So in the world are man and his dwellings. It is, again at least in my opinion, a deeply haunting line that resonates very much with the opening of another famous work from a century or so later, The Tale of the Heike, whose opening lines remind us that all things in the world are as impermanent as the sound of a tolling bell. The text continues in this vein for a bit, noting, quote, Whence does he come, whence does he go, man that is born and dies? We know not. 
For whose benefit does he torment himself in building homes that last but a moment? For what reason is his eye delighted by them? This too we do not know. Which will be the first to go, the master or his dwelling? One might as well ask this of the dew on the morning glory. The dew may fall and the flower remain, remain only to be withered by the morning sun. The flower may fade before the dew evaporates, but though it does not evaporate, it waits not till the evening. Every time I read Hojoki, I wonder if this pessimism was actually comforting to Kamono Chome. After all, he himself had lost his shot at worldly glory. Perhaps it felt nice to remind himself that ultimately it did not matter. Maybe he'd lost his chance to inherit his father's position at Shimogamo Shrine, but that dwelling too, like all the others, would eventually fade. To drive home this pessimism, Hojoki then moves into recounting a series of disasters afflicting Kyoto that took place both in the lifetime of Kamono Chome and before. A devastating fire in the 1170s, a great whirlwind in the 1180s, a famine in that same decade, and a massive earthquake in the 800s. These descriptions are frankly pretty brutal. One of the most infamous is from the famine section, describing an unknowing baby suckling at the breast of his already deceased mother. Interestingly, missing from this narrative of disaster is the largest conflict of the era, the Genpei War between the Minamoto and Taira clans for control of Kyoto and the Emperor. This conflict raged across the early 1180s, and saw several battles in the vicinity of Kyoto, and yet it is not mentioned once in the text. The only man-made disaster that is mentioned in the text is a bit of an odd one. The decision in the year 1180 to relocate Japan's imperial court to Fukuhara, down on the coast away from Kyoto. The warlord Taira no Kiyomori, who controlled the emperor and his court until his death, after which his family was ousted by Minamoto no Yoritomo, made the decision to move the capital to his stronghold at Fukuhara in the early days of the Genpei War in order to make the emperor easier to control, since control of the court was key to Kiyomori's own legitimacy. Kamo no Chome spends no time on these background details. Indeed, he describes the whole ordeal essentially in the passive voice, the capital was suddenly moved, in a way that makes it unclear who even made the decision in the first place. Instead, the focus is entirely on the dislocation created by the move, and how it upended the norms surrounding life in the capital, from ensuring there was the proper number of streets, a good capital should have nine streets going east-west and eight going north-south, but Fukuhara's site was too cramped for this, to providing transit for the nobility. Fukuhara's nobles rode on horses, a practice associated with the vulgar samurai, instead of the ox carts associated with the kuge aristocracy. Kamono Chome describes his own visit to the city thusly, quote, There were still many empty fields and few houses standing. The old capital was now desolate, but the new one had yet to be finished. Men all felt as uncertain as drifting clouds. Those people who were natives of the place lamented the loss of their lands, and those who had now moved there complained of the difficulties of putting up houses. I could see on the roads men on horseback who should have been riding in carriages. Instead of wearing court robes, they were in simple service dress. The manners of the capital had suddenly changed and now were exactly like those of rustic soldiers." Unquote. The Fukuhara experiment lasted only six months, 
before Tyrano Kiyomori caved to popular discontent and returned the capital to Kyoto. Yet for Kamono Chome, the whole episode is a stark illustration of the tragic nature of our modern times. You see, Kamono Chome was a big believer in a notion we've talked about before, mappo or the declining law. This was an idea very influential in medieval Buddhism in Japan, including on Nichiren Buddhism, we actually talked about it in our episodes on Soka Gakkai. It states, essentially, that in a world where nothing lasts forever, even Buddhism itself is fading away. Specifically, the Mapo Doctrine asserts that the world has entered an age of decline in the Buddhist law, where the slow decay of Buddhism itself has made salvation harder and harder to attain, and in some cases, outright impossible without outside intervention from a powerful force, like the Lotus Sutra or one of the Buddhas. In some variants of Mapo doctrine, this decline is expressed not just in Buddhism, but in the state of the world itself, which becomes more prone to disaster and misfortune as a result of the understanding of the basic laws of the universe, that is to say the teachings of Buddhism, fading away. This is, of course, precisely what's happening here in Hojoki, at least according to Kamono Chome. The disasters of the world are reflecting the decline of the true law. The last part of the book is more of a reflection on Kamono Chome's own life, talking a bit about the misfortunes of his own life and how they've led him to this tiny little hut, where he lives detached from the world as a lay Buddhist, and far happier here than he'd been anywhere before. As he states towards the end of the text, quote, I love my tiny hut, my lonely dwelling. When I chance to go down into the capital, I am ashamed of my lowly beggar status. But once back here again, I pity those who chase after the sordid rewards of the world. If any doubt my words, let them look to the fish and to the birds. Fish never tire of water, a state incomprehensible to any but the fish. The birds' desire for the forest makes sense to none but the birds. And so it is with the pleasures of seclusion. Who but one who lives it can understand its joys." Unquote. And yet Kamono Chome simply can't help but end on a downer note. Quote, the Buddha's essential teaching is to relinquish all attachment. This fondness for my hut I now see must be error, and my attachment to a life of seclusion and peace is an impediment to rebirth. How could I waste my days like this, describing useless pleasures? In the quiet dawn, I ponder this and question my own heart. You fled the world to live among forest and mountain in order to discipline the mind and practice the Buddhist way. But though you have all the trappings of a holy man, your heart is corrupt. Your dwelling may aspire to be the hut of the holy Vimalakirti himself, but the practice you maintain cannot match even that of the fool Sudipantaka. Have you after all let the poverty ordained by past sins distract you, or have your delusions tipped you over into madness? When I confront my heart thus, it cannot reply." Unquote. If you're wondering, Sudipantaka is a disciple of the Buddha famous for being, frankly, kind of an idiot, though he did still manage to attain enlightenment. The whole Joki is probably best remembered for its strong Buddhist tones, as you can probably tell. By the time Kamono Chome wrote it, he'd taken the vows of a Buddhist monk, and his concern with Buddhism is of course very much reflected in the context of the text itself. But it's also a tremendous example of Zuihitsu as a genre. 
Remember that Zuihitsu is about reflecting the experiences of an individual life and doing so in a way that is more outwardly focused than internally focused, writing in a way that's clearly intended to be consumed by others. Actual diaries, frankly, don't tend to be this thematically consistent in terms of the messages they're trying to send, after all. All of these factors are clearly present in Hojoki, plus the sort of fragmentary jumping around nature is typical of a genre that is, after all, literally translated as the wandering brush. What about our second text, then? Well, my friends, let me introduce you to Tsurezuregusa, usually translated in English as Essays in Idleness or The Harvest of Leisure by Yoshida Kenko. So who was Yoshida Kenko? Well, we know that he was born in Kyoto sometime in the 1280s, probably 1283. His birth name was Urabe Kaneyoshi. I haven't found out much about his birth family, but he was educated and apparently spent some time in the Imperial Guards, so my guess would be a samurai background of some kind. In 1313, he became what's known as a tonseisha, essentially someone who takes some of the vows of a Buddhist monk but remains officially a lay person. In 1319, he started writing Tsurezuregusa, though the precise circumstances under which he did so are a bit unclear. One thing I should note before we move on. Though the author is commonly known as Yoshida Kenko, he never actually used that surname in his lifetime. Kenko is the name he took after becoming a tonseisha, but during his own time he was commonly referred to as Kenko Hoshi, roughly Kenko who teaches the law. The Yoshida thing was actually popularized during the Edo period when the members of something called the Yoshida School of Shinto, which was an early attempt to systematize Shinto doctrine, tried to claim him as part of their lineage and started popularizing calling him Yoshida Kenko. However, there's no actual good evidence pointing to Kenko being a part of the Yoshida lineage, something that has been demonstrated for decades in the scholarship at this point, but the name Yoshida Kenko remains popular, and so I will be part of the problem and use it here too, because if you look this guy up, that's probably the name you'll find him under. Tsurezuregusa itself is similar in some ways to Hojoki. Both express dissatisfaction with the way things are and idealize the past as having been a better time. But Kenko's attitude is still markedly different from that of Kamono Chome. I'll quote here from Meredith McKinney's fantastic introduction to the two texts. Quote, Where Chome was prone to gloom and to impulsive reactions that led him to flee the mundane world and bury himself ever deeper in the hills, Kenko, for all his admonitions to do likewise, was in fact far too intrigued by the world to turn his back on it. The contradictions which drove Chome to despair and self-accusation sit happily together in Kenko's writing and in his life. His times demanded adaptability to an often inconsistent and multi-layered world, and he was a man well-suited to his times." Unquote. Later on in that same essay, McKinney notes that Kenko remained essentially a man of the world, what does that mean? Well, let's figure it out by taking a look at the text. The Tsurezuregusa is composed of 243 separate little anecdotal entries, ranging from a few lines to several paragraphs in length. So, for example, let's turn to number 126 of 243. Quote, Someone once said to me, 
when a man has lost almost everything in gambling and is preparing to stake all he has left on the next throw, his opponent should withdraw. He should recognize this as the moment when the other's luck is about to change and come into a winning streak. A good gambler is one who knows when this time has come." Unquote. Now Isaac, you might say, if I didn't know better, I'd say that sounds a lot like a Buddhist monk is giving me advice as to how to gamble. To which I say, yes, in fact, that's exactly what this Buddhist monk is doing. Honestly, parts of Suryuzudegusa read less like the writings of a Buddhist monk and more like an advice manual for a young man about town. That's not to say that Kenko entirely embraces the world around him. Consider number 164, quote, When people get together, they are never silent for a moment. They will always talk. When you listen to what they say, a great deal of it is pointless. There is much harm and little good for either party in such worldly gossip and judgment of others. But as they talk, they are unaware of how futile for both of them this chatter is." Unquote. And this really is the charm of Tsurezuregusa, at least for me. It feels very much like a collection of fragments in a way that is reminiscent of Makura no Soshi slash The Pillow Book of Seishonagon, another text I have a deep and abiding fondness for. To return to the words of Dr. McKinney, quote, Where Hojoki strives to maintain a tight thematic focus and development that keeps the portrait of its writer largely one-dimensional, Tsurezuregusa sprawls across the gamut of thought and experience of a complicated and cheerfully inconsistent man. It is written with an apparent artlessness in a string of sections of greatly varying length, rather like an occasional journal into which all kinds of passing thoughts are jotted. Continuities between sections can certainly be found, but it is the nature of Suryajuregusa to constantly surprise. So again, what does that mean in practice? Well, the text goes back and forth between a sort of lamentation of the present day, more in line with what you see in Hojoki, and something that's more jovial, I suppose, is the word. Sometimes it's not even clear which section is intended to be which. Take, for example, number 153. When Grand Counselor Novice Tamekani was surrounded by a throng of soldiers arrested and taken to the Rokuhara Commissary, Count Suketomo observed the incident from the vicinity of Ichijo Street. Ah, how I envy him, he remarked. That's the ideal kind of memory to take from having lived. Kyogoku Tamekane, if you're wondering, was busted for essentially being on the wrong side of a factional dispute at court that is way too arcane for us to worry about it much. Hinosuke Tomo, the count looking admirably at the scene, would also end up getting brought down by the man-man for his part in an eventual rebellion against the throne. So what is the tone of this supposed to be? Is it tragic, mocking the obsession with prestige and power inherent in the nobility when they should be focusing on spiritual matters? Mocking, simply laughing at the inability of Suketomo to see his own fate coming for him? A simple commentary on the desire to be remembered? It's not quite clear, and it can be read in all of these ways as a result, which, again, is part of the charm. After all, we can come to interpret our own anecdotes in life very differently depending on our circumstances, too. The disconnected nature of Tsurezuregusa is frankly part of the fun, you never really know what you're gonna get. Sometimes it's comic and mocking. One of my favorite sections has a senile old palace minister mistake everyone he meets, including a random dog, for venerable saints. 
Sometimes it's very serious and thoughtful. Take, for example, section 142, which I'm going to quote in its entirety because I just love it that much. Even people who seem to lack any finer feelings will sometimes say something impressive. An alarming-looking ruffian from the eastern provinces once turned to the man beside him and asked if he had any children. Not one, the man replied. Well then, said the easterner, you'll know not what true depth of feeling is. It frightens me to think of a man unacquainted with tenderness. It's having your own children that brings home to you the poignant beauty of life. This is indeed true. Without familial love, would such a man as this be able to feel compassion? Even a man who lacks all filial piety will discover how a parent feels when he himself has children. It is wrong for a man who has taken the tonsure and cast away all to despise those who he sees around him encumbered with worldly ties, who go abjectly crawling after this person and that, and are full of craving. If you imagined yourself in his place, you would see how he might abase himself so far as to steal for the sake of his beloved parents or wife and children. Rather than seizing thieves and punishing their crimes, it would be better to make the world a place where people did not go hungry or cold. A man without stable means is a man whose heart is unstable. People steal from extremity. There will be no end to crime while the world is not well governed, and men suffer from cold and starvation. It is cruel to make people suffer and drive them to break the law, then treat the poor creatures as criminals. As for how to improve people's lives, there can be no doubt that it would benefit those below if people in high positions were to cease their luxurious and wasteful ways, and instead were kind and tender to the people, and encouraged agriculture. The true criminal must be defined as a man who commits a crime, though he is as decently fed and clothed as others." Unquote. Anyway, I could go on like this for a while, just randomly quoting bits of Suresuri Gusa at you, but that's not particularly engaging, I imagine, not to mention the fact that doing justice to a fragmentary text in this fashion is pretty hard. So instead, I'll just recommend you give it a read yourself, the Penguin Classics translation, which comes in a double pack with a very good translation of Hojoki, is quite solid. Before we call it an episode, though, there are two things I want to discuss. First, what connections can we draw between these two Zuihitsu texts? And second, why should we even care about Zuihitsu as a genre at all? Superficially, after all, Hojoki and Tsurizuregusa are very different. Hojoki reads more like a narrative and has a tight and depressing thematic focus on the decline of our world. Tsurizuregusa, by contrast, is far less thematically or narratively focused, and alternates between more light-hearted and more serious moments. And yet, there's still a lot that binds these two texts together. Thematically, of course, both men had an interest in Buddhism which permeates their own writing, and especially with the idea of mujo, or impermanence, the idea that nothing in our world lasts, and that the most meaningful thing you could therefore do was devote your energies to the Buddhist faith. Both men had a keen feeling for this idea, though Kamo no Chome's view of it is once again far more pessimistic, while Yoshida Kenko can't seem to help but empathize with those caught up in our ephemeral world. Stylistically, both texts feel very psychological. You really feel like you're getting to know both what Kamo no Chome and Yoshida Kenko thought, what they'd be like to have a beer with, or I guess a bottle of sake for lack of a better term. 
And yet, of course, that feeling of psychological naturalness is itself very carefully constructed. The text is intended to make you feel as though it's a sort of effortless look into the minds of the authors, when, of course, it is the precise opposite of that carefully constructed and effortful, I guess. Is that a word? There are many different things which draw people to Zuihitsu as a genre, but for my money, this is really the best thing about it. It's a character study where you get a sense of this artfully constructed character and then get to spend some time pondering what is real about that character and what is not. And to cap it all off, there's just this real craft to Zuihitsu that I appreciate a lot. Creating a text that feels psychological and introspective without being navel-gazy or self-obsessed, which comments on the contemporary world without being trapped by its time and place, that's very hard to do, and it's always fun to see someone with talent execute a difficult task like that. As for the legacy of the genre, well, the genre of Zuihitsu remained hugely influential even well after the medieval period when these texts were written. Attempts to imitate the style of the Pillow Book, Hojoki, and Surizure Gusa continue up to this day. During the Edo period, there was a whole profusion of Zuihitsu, and while the genre fell off a bit in popularity, as all things traditional did during the early Meiji period, it revived during the 20th century. Indeed, there's a particularly fascinating Zuihitsu revival in the 1920s, though that revival was plagued by constant questions about how to define Zuihitsu and how much a modern Zuihitsu author should deliberately attempt to mimic the styles of the past. No less an author than the famous Mishima Yukio, one of the, let's call him, more dramatic figures in the Japanese literary scene, took to giving Zuihitsu a go in a collection of serialized Zuihitsu-inspired essays entitled Lessons in Immorality, a rather biting social satire of 1950s Japan that, much as Hojoki and Tsurezure Gusa did, tried to hold up a mirror to the society of its day, while also reflecting a constructed idea of its author. The genre has even branched out into the Japanese diaspora. The Japanese-American writer and poet Kimiko Han produced a fascinating example of the genre in English with her Narrow Road to the Interior, a play on the title of Matsuo Basho's Oku no Hosomichi. And really, part of the survival of Zuihitsu and the joy people continue to take from it is its malleability. The definition I've given, you'll notice, leaves a lot of room for interpretation, and there are many ways to get the Zuihitsu effect. And that openness, the freedom authors have to put their own stamp on the style, that's a big part of why it has withstood the test of time. Speaking personally, I think Zuihitsu gets at something I really love about any form of literature, a quality I think both Hojoki and Tsurezure Gusa possess, as well as the pillow book, but I've gushed about that plenty before. What really makes a text click for me is that feeling of reaching across time and space and connecting to an emotion, a feeling, an idea the author is putting out there that I've shared myself. This doesn't have to be profound, I mean, I definitely connected to the Canterbury Tales in large part because fart jokes are funny is a sentiment I happen to share, and to the works of the Edo period comic writer Ihara Saikaku because I think sex comedies are funny too. The connection is what matters, and I think Zuihitsu is so great for creating that feeling. Yoshida Kenko and Kamono Chome were both very different people. Despite their shared Buddhist calling and geographic setting, 
the two men seem to have been very different personalities, and you really get a sense of that from what they wrote. And that sense is part of what makes Zuihitsu so fun. It's ironic, perhaps, that the core concern of both texts seems to be the idea that nothing lasts forever, and yet they've made it so that the people who wrote them live in a certain way far beyond their own times. But hey, that irony is a part of life, and therefore a part of the joy of these texts too, and one can't help but wonder if it too was in the back of the minds of both authors when they were writing. That's all for this week, thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we take a look at one of the most famous female poets of the Edo period, Kaga no Chio.